Morning, everyone. We're um, going to end our series on uh, the Old Testament types of Christ, uh, the Advent series. Uh, today, we will examine the life of Moses as to how he was a type of Christ, how he prefigured Christ. Uh, now, before we do that, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and seek his help. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this uh, privilege that we can study your word together. Thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we need your help from your spirit uh, to open our hearts and minds to receive your word, uh, to, to, to learn uh, how Christ our Lord had fulfilled all uh, uh, that Moses had prefigured. I pray that we would uh, not just hear your word, but, but that we would obey your word and that we'd, uh, we would apply your word to our lives. I thank you again for this time. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I have provided an, an outline that we will follow. Uh, and uh, the format of our study is we will see how Moses had prefigured Christ in the three roles in which he, uh, he fulfilled. Uh, there are many ways in which Moses was a type of Christ, but I've chosen these three roles. And those roles are the role of a prophet, the role of a uh, mediator, and a, uh, the role of a judge. So the, the format in which we will do this study is we'll first look at how Moses was a type of Christ in his role as a prophet, and then we will see how Jesus was the greater fulfillment of that role, and then we will look at how, G uh, how Moses uh, prefigured Christ in his role as a mediator, and then we'll see how Jesus uh, was the greater fulfillment in being the mediator between God and man. And lastly, we will see how Moses prefigured Christ in his role as a judge, and then how Christ is the greater fulfillment as uh, our judge. I have uh, saved some time for some application and discussion. We'll, we'll do that towards the end. Uh, I do have a couple of application questions that uh, we can look at together. And if you have any comments or questions, you, know, you could save that uh, uh, to the end at that time. So let's uh, first see how Moses uh, prefigured Christ in his role as a prophet. Uh, before we do that, let's first turn our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We'll look at that. That will be our springboard, and we'll go back in time and examine the life of Moses. Uh, let's start with Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the role of the prophet. Before we get there, let's first define for ourselves what a prophet is. 
Now, there are three uh, Hebrew words that are used to define a prophet. The most common word is the word navi, and that means to flow, to boil up, and to bubble forth. And the idea being is uh, uh, the prophet speaks from within what message that he has been given or that he sees, as we will uh, uh, see later. Because the other two words, which are the Hebrew words, ro and jose, they both mean to see. So taken together, these three words define a prophet as one who speaks the word or the message given to him or seen by him. Michael Williams, in his book, The Prophet and His Message, says, God puts his words into the mouth of the prophet and enables him to speak and act as God desires. So having defined what a prophet is, let's see how Moses fulfills his role and prefigures Christ in this role as a prophet. Moses as you recall, had his prophetic calling from God in his encounter with the Holy One at the burning bush. And God revealed himself to Moses through the burning bush, saying, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, in Exodus 3. And then, after his revelation, God commissions Moses to be his prophet to Egypt. Moses brought God's message of comfort and deliverance uh, from slavery uh, for the children of Israel. And he also pronounced God's judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Also in his role as a prophet, Moses served as God's lawgiver. And we see that in uh, Exodus 20. Uh, Moses re uh, received uh, the law from God at Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments they encapsulated the moral law and uh, the ceremonial law governed their, their worship uh, in the sacrificial system. And you also had the dietary laws which governed their way of life. So all these laws, the moral, the ceremonial, the dietary laws were given uh, of God to his people through his prophet Moses. And throughout the Pentateuch, which Moses penned, uh, we see that God spoke regularly to Moses. And in turn, Moses gave uh, his message, that is God's message, to the people of God. There are numerous passages. And I did a, a search. Um, I used my ESV Bible app. And I, and I searched, the Lord spoke. And, uh, or rather, the Lord spoke to Moses. And this, the search revealed multiple, numerous occurrences with these exact words, the Lord spoke to Moses saying. And that was in Leviticus alone. So there's a clear indication that God communicated his message to Moses and Moses brought God's message to the people of Israel, uh, affirming that Moses was indeed God's prophet. Apostle Peter also affirmed prophet, prophetic revelation as being divine. He says in 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, 
but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in his parable of the rich man and Lazarus, referred to Moses as one of the prophets. In this parable, the rich man, uh, being in torment in hell, cries out to Abraham and pleads with him to send someone to his relatives to warn him of the judgment to come. And Abraham replies back to the rich man saying, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. So we see that Moses fulfills the role of prophet and prefigures Christ in that role. Now let's examine how Christ is the perfect fulfillment of the prophetic role of which Moses was a type. Even during his lifetime, God promised Moses saying, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. At Jesus' baptism, the Father said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus appeared with Moses and Elijah, God the Father again said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. In doing so, God the Father was effectively declaring that Christ Jesus is greater than Moses, the law-giving prophet, that Christ Jesus' his son is greater than Elijah, the prophet who never experienced physical death. Michael Williams, in his book, The Prophet and His Message, argues that Christ fulfilled the prophetic role in three ways. One, uh, verbally, two, behaviorally, and three, effectively. So let's first see how Jesus fulfills this prophetic role verbally, that is, through his teachings. Now, Jesus expounds the law of God in a far deeper and broader context than was taught by, by all the prophets who preceded him. And we see that specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and that is found in Matthew chapter 5. So turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 5. We'll look, at the, we'll look at that together. We're not going to have time to, to look at all the verses there, but uh, we'll look at the first series of his teachings. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So here in his discourse on the Sermon on the Mount, Christ goes beyond these law-violating actions that were prohibited in the Ten Commandments, and he addresses the thoughts and intentions of the heart that lead to these actions. Christ says, if you think about murdering, lusting, stealing, you have disobeyed, rather you have committed these, these acts, and you have disobeyed God. 
The Gospel of Matthew says that at the end of this discourse on a Sermon on the Mount, this is how the crowds react to Jesus' teaching. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now Jesus not only taught the word of God, we, we see from John chapter one uh, in his prologue that he was the word of God, who was with God in the beginning, in eternity past. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and spoke to us the oracles of God. The second way in which Jesus fulfills the prophetic role is behaviorally, that is through his actions. Uh, in, the, in the Old Covenant, the, the prophets, they performed various miracles. Uh, the miracles that they performed were few and rare. Jesus, on the other hand, performed many miracles, some of which had never been performed before. Let's look at uh, one such example in Matthew chapter 9. Just turn a couple of pages over uh, to Matthew chapter 9, and uh, we'll be looking at uh, starting in verse... Yeah, starting in verse 1. Here in his encounter with the paralytic, Jesus says and does something quite remarkable. Uh, this paralytic is brought to Jesus to be healed, and uh, Jesus says to him in, in verse 2, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes who are, who are witnessing this, who are among the crowd, uh, they say to themselves, not audibly, uh, but are thinking, uh, this man that is Christ, he blasphemes. Who else can forgive sins but God? Uh, Jesus, uh, knowing their thoughts, uh, he has replies to them. He has this response uh, to these scribes. Uh, that he, he says that in his response is in, um, let's see, uh, starting in verse 4. He says, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he says to the paralytic, Rise up and walk or pick up your bed and go home, and he heals the paralytic of his paralysis. So no prophet preceding Christ had ever said these words, spoken these words, uh, or dared to say these words, your sins are forgiven. Uh, not Moses or Elijah or David. Uh, they did not have the power to forgive their own sins or to absolve themselves of their own sins, let alone the sins of others. But here Jesus demonstrates his deity and his inherent power to, as God to forgive sins. Peter uh, teaches us in Acts, referring to Christ, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The greatest miracle that Jesus had ever performed was his resurrection from the dead, in which he was victorious over sin, Satan, and, and death for our salvation. And Jesus also fulfilled the law by his perfect obedience 
to all the law of God for our righteousness. Lastly, Jesus also fulfilled the prophetic role uh, affectively, that is through his emotions. The prophet says that uh, Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And in uh, Matthew chapter 23, as he's looking at Jerusalem, leading up to his death and crucifixion, he anguished over the people's rejection of him and all, all the prophets who had preceded him. The people not only rejected the prophets who had preceded Christ, who had pointed to Christ, but they, in the end, they rejected Christ as Savior and Lord. He cried out, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So Christ is truly the greater, perfect fulfillment of what Moses had prefigured as a prophet. Now let's look at how Moses was also a type of Christ in his role as mediator. He mediated between God and the people of Israel. We see that uh, one of the clearest example of, of Moses' mediation is found in Exodus chapter 32. Turn with me to that, uh, to that passage. Exodus chapter 32, and uh, we'll look at uh, starting in verse 9. So there are, there are four things that we'll look at here. The first thing is the context in which this mediation occurs. Moses is up at Mount Sinai, and he's receiving the Ten Commandments and the other laws from God. And while Moses is, uh, is up on the mountain, the children of Israel, they quote-unquote get bored, and they make a golden calf, uh, courtesy of Aaron, Moses' brother. And they involve themselves in idolatry and debauchery. And uh, the second thing that we see in this passage in response to uh, uh, these Israelites' idolatry, uh, they incur the fury and wrath of God. And the second thing is God's response to their idolatry. We read that in uh, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and, may cons and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God is not only angry with this people for their, idolat uh, for their idolatry, but he also proposes to Moses, I'm going to wipe them out and I will make a great nation of you. Instead of Abraham being the father of this nation, you will be the father of this nation that I will start anew. Uh, and let's see what the third thing, let's see how Moses uh, mediates on behalf of the people. Uh, starting in verse 11. But Moses implored the, God, the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out 
to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your, by your own self and said to them, I will multiply, multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall, they shall inherit it forever. So there are two ways uh, in which Moses mediates on behalf of the people. First, he pleads God's honor and praise among the Egyptians. He says, what will the Egyptians think if you were to destroy this people, having redeemed them from slavery? Will they not think ill of your holy name? And the second way in which Moses uh, uh, mediates on behalf of the people is that he pleads God's covenant promise, his promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel, that he will make of them a great nation. And lastly, we see God's response to Moses' mediation in verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So Moses was the mediator, and he prefigured Christ in that role. So let's see how Christ is the greater fulfillment of being the mediator between God and man. The Puritan William Perkins said, the prophet, that is the minister of, of, word, of the word, uh, has two duties. One is the preaching the word, and the other is praying to God in the name of the people. We had just learned how Jesus preached, how he taught the word of God to his people. Now let's learn how Jesus was and is the voice of his people to God. How is Jesus our mediator? And there are a few examples of this in uh, the four gospel accounts. I'll give you a, uh, we'll look at three. The first example was when the, when, uh, the disciples were in the boat uh, on the sea and they were laboring through a storm and their lives were in danger. Uh, during that time, Jesus was praying to the Lord up on the mountain. He was interceding on behalf of his disciples on the mountain. And the third, uh, uh, the second way was uh, preceding Peter's denial. Jesus, knowing that Peter would deny Christ, says to him, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And indeed, Peter's faith did not fail in the end because Christ interceded and, and God preserved his faith. And lastly, we see Christ's mediation uh, through prayer is in John 17. Jesus, as part of his high priestly prayer for his disciples, prayed, keep them from the evil one, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. Even the, uh, uh, the apostles and the New Testament authors, they, uh, they affirm Christ as being the mediator. Paul says, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The author of Hebrews calls Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. As he mediated this covenant by his own blood shed on the cross for the atonement of our sins. So lastly, 
Moses prefigured Christ in his role as judge. He judged the people of Israel for 40 years. Let's look at Exodus chapter 18. A couple of examples here. The first example that I want us to look at is Exodus chapter 18. We will not be reading that passage, uh, but just uh, previewing it to get an idea as to how uh, Moses judged the, the people. Uh, at the beginning of this passage, Moses sits as judge and he presides over the various matters involving the people of Israel. And we're told in this passage that the people are, are standing and, and waiting for Moses to, to, to judge their matters from morning till evening. And we see that Moses has a tremendous responsibility judging all sorts of matters, deciding on all sorts of small and large matters involving the people of Israel. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, is visiting at that time and he provides advice to Moses. And he, he advises him to delegate the, the responsibility of judging uh, the people to other able, qualified men. And he does so, but while these qualified men share that role alongside with Moses, Moses continues to serve the nation as God's presiding, presiding judge. We also see that in uh, Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11, verses 15 through 17. We won't uh, turn to that, but in this passage, Moses pleads with the Lord, saying that the responsibility, responsibility that he has uh, to judge the nation and uh, to serve uh, God in that role is, is quite burdensome. And, uh, and God in turn allows Moses, directs Moses to appoint 70 other elders to share that responsibility uh, with Moses. So we see that Moses served or prefigured Christ as judge in that role. Now there are other prophets, various prophets that had prophesied of one who will judge his people in righteousness, one who will come uh, after Moses and who would serve as a judge greater than Moses. Uh, the first one is in Psalm chapter 90, verse 1. Here the psalmist says, The Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Perhaps the clearest uh, 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 example or clearest prophetic message that Christ will be the judge of his people is found in Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 4. Turn with me to that passage and we'll look at it together. We'll read it together. Isaiah chapter 11. starting in verse one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, 
or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with, his and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So here is a clear statement that one will come from the stump of Jesse, the lineage of David, who will sit and judge his people, judge the world in righteousness, and, and, and govern his people with equity. And Jesus himself, during his earthly ministry, said this in John chapter 5, verse 22. Let me read that for us here. John, I'll turn my Bible over. John chapter 5, verse 22. This is what uh, Jesus spoke of the judgment uh, that, uh, that he would pronounce. He says, for the, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now at his first advent, Jesus did not come to bring God's judgment, but rather he came to bear God's judgment on himself on our behalf for our atonement. And he says so in John chapter 12, verse 4. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now the people of, na uh, the, people of the nation of Israel were looking for a different sort of judge and were expecting a different judgment than what Christ came to give. They, uh, they were seeking a king to overthrow the Roman rule and they wanted the Davidic kingdom, an earthly kingdom, reestablished like the days of old. Yet Jesus brought and established a kingdom not of this world, a kingdom inaugurated by his judgment on our behalf on the cross for our sins. And Jesus will judge us on the basis of whether we have believed or rejected him as savior from our sins. Yet there will be a second advent. And at this advent, when Jesus returns for his people and to, consume it, and to consummate the kingdom which he had inaugurated, there will be a different judgment that he will pronounce uh, on his people and on, the, uh, and on the world, on humanity. And we see that in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 15. Turn over with me to Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Let's skip over to verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is, uh, the, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So at this advent, his second advent, Christ will not proclaim to, to the world, repent 
for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God has come. That time for repentance has come and gone. Rather, we read here in Revelation that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations and he will, root, uh, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. We're told in Matthew chapter 25, when the Son of Man returns in glory and sits in judgment, his words uh, to those who heeded his call for repentance uh, would be, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Note, uh, Christ does not stop here in his judgment. Again, going back to what Michael Williams says in his book, how, pro how Christ uh, fulfills his role as a prophet, uh, verbally, behaviorally, and also effectively, our profession of faith in Christ is not a verbal attestation. It should be behavioral as well. Uh, there should be works that follow our faith. And, uh, and we will be judged according, our, according to our works uh, that, that is in response to our faith. Um, so his judgment on us will not be merely on our verbal response to him, a verbal profession of faith, Saying I love Christ, I'm a Christian is not enough. True faith in Christ transforms our behaviors and directs our actions towards holiness. Uh, let's read uh, verse 36 in Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five, verse 36. Sorry, um, I said Matthew 5, we're uh, Matthew 25, that's what I meant to say. Matthew 25, verse uh, 36. Here Christ says to, uh, to his people, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you drink. And he says, and when, and when, did, and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, uh, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to, the, uh, to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Archie Sproul in his commentary on the uh, Gospel of Matthew says, you might be thinking that this whole text is about works. Doesn't that show that works are involved in salvation? However, justification is not by, uh, by faith that is alone. It is not by a mere profession of faith. Anyone who possesses saving faith immediately begins to do good works. We are not justified by our works in any way, but we are justified to good works. On the last day, our professions of faith will be judged by the works we have performed. Again, we are not justified by our works, but if we do not have works, there is clear evidence that we do not have saving faith. And that was R.C. Sproul. So Christ goes on to those who rejected him, who rejected his call to repentance. He will judge them in their sins. He says to them, depart from me, 
you cursed into eternal, eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So we see that Moses prefigured Christ in the roles of prophet, mediator, and judge. And we saw that Christ is the greater fulfillment, greater and perfect fulfillment of each of those roles which Moses had prefigured. So at this time, I'm going to um, allocate some time for questions and uh, any comments that you may have. I do have a couple of questions, and you'll see them on the outline that I have provided you. Uh, the first question that um, I would want us to consider is, could Jesus have fulfilled the role of prophet without becoming flesh and dwelling among us? Please explain. I will say, I forgot to say that these questions are, are not my own. I, uh, I used uh, Michael Williams' book, uh, The Prophet and His Message, uh, to, to, to guide me in my study, and uh, I, I got these two questions from him. It, he made my task a, a bit easier in that regard. I'm not sure I've ever considered that question specifically. When I think of why Jesus had to be incarnated, I don't think of prophet, so I'm not sure. But two passages that might say no to that is Hebrews 2 says, since the word spoken to us by angels proved to be reliable. So angels spoken to us a word. What exactly that is, we know the law was given through angels. And Hebrews 12 says, if, if we refuse, if they do not escape when they refuse him who spoke on earth, how shall we not escape if we reject him who speaks from heaven? So those might say you could have some kind of a prophetic word, probably not in the way the Old Testament prophesied it would, would be a key though. Since no one else answered, I thought I would. Anyone else? Uh, we do know that he couldn't have been a priest without becoming incarnate. We do know that he probably couldn't have become a king without becoming incarnate. So I would argue, yes, to fulfill the role of prophecy, he did need to be incarnate. I don't know who I may be disagreeing with, but that's my view. I would argue yes as well. Because Christ himself said, I did not come to... Uh, destroy the law but to fulfill the law and his fulfillment of of the law you see the prophets of old they not only taught the law of God but they were also held accountable to the law of God and they were uh, they were unable to to fulfill the law themselves perfectly as great as Moses Elijah and David were they needed a greater prophet they needed God of God Christ Jesus to come and not only give the law in a broader and more deeper context, but also to live the law on our behalf. Uh, the second question, what significance should the fact that Jesus perfectly fulfills the office of prophet have for us today? Reflect on the implication of this. Again, not my question, but Michael Williams. Yes.
Yes, great comment. Can you, can you, uh, thank you, Keith. I mean, uh, Joe. <laughs> thank you, Keith, too. <laughs> I said All it, of you. it just means that he has done it for us because we could never, ever fulfill it ourselves. So we're covered by what he did for us. Good comment. It gives us assurance, too, that Christ has done for us what we could not do on our own, what no human could have accomplished. Christ did that for us. That's why it was necessary for Christ to come. Any other comments or questions on what we have looked at this morning? I do want to end with this, if no one else has any comments or questions. Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 8, as we conclude our series on uh, the Advent, how Christ fulfills perfectly and in a far greater way the offices of prophet, priest, king, shepherd, mediator, Judge. So how should we respond to that? And we see a response given to the first recipients of, uh, of this good news uh, of Christ's birth. Uh, starting in verse 8, we have these shepherds who were watching, keeping flock uh, at night, and an angel comes to them, and he announces this good news. And the angel, in verse 10, says to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And when the angels, in verse 15, and when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to, one, said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in manger. I would draw your attention to their response to this announcement of Christ's birth. And it's a twofold response. The first response and I have intentionally am uh, directing your attention to verse 20 before the preceding verse. Verse 20 says, And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So the response to Christ's birth, his advent, and our response, our daily response, should be worship. And the second response is found in verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been uh, told them concerning this child. And that second response is witness. So that should be our daily response to Christ being, having perfectly fulfilled all those roles of the, which these men were a type of. Be it Moses, David, Adam, worship and witness. One should guide the other. Let's... Uh, and in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time that we could spend together in the study of your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have fully and perfectly fulfilled the role of prophet, uh, 
mediator and judge on our behalf. Lord, I pray that you'd grant us the grace by your spirit to have the right response as the shepherds did, to worship you and to witness of you in our community. Continue to prepare our hearts for, for the worship. I pray that you would uh, uh, lead us and guide us that your name would be exalted and that we would be strengthened and equipped to do the work of the gospel in the coming week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.